All right, so let's go ahead and get uh, started today. Father, thank you for a gorgeous day out, for bringing us out here safely. Pray that you would teach us now in this time together, help us to appreciate the Bible that we have in front of us that is from you. Thank you for this time in Christ's name. Amen. Um, what we're going to do today is we're going to basically finish up the bibliology course part. And next week, I'm, next week probably what we're going to do is I'm going to, I'm going to bring in an interesting video. And what it does is it's, it's a really, it's obviously well put together. Um, but it's going to bring together a lot of the things we've been talking here in bibliology because it's a comparison of the Bible with the Book of Mormon. All right? And it compares the two and it shows how, you know, all of the things we've been talking about the Bible here with, you know, the authority, the inspiration, the historicity, the accuracy, and how that compares to the Book of Mormon. So not only are you going to get a review of what we've talked about in the course here, but you're going to get a comparison with the Book of Mormon, which is interesting. So if you teach it well enough, when you become Mormon? Yeah. Or you will find out that, you know, why the Book of Mormon is not the Word of God. I mean, and it is. It's a very interesting and fascinating um, video that we have. So. Okay. Well, when you, when you look at what Mormons actually believe, it's pretty weird and far out. I mean, it's really... You know, sometimes, sometimes as you think about it, you look at yourself as a Christian, and you think, you know, I'm a little bit off base. You know, I, I believe in a place I've never been to, a God I've never seen, a Savior I've never talked to. And we think sometimes that maybe we're a little weird. But then when you find out what some of these other religions believe, you're normal. I mean, they're the, it's that weird. So it's an interesting book because, or interesting video because it's going to compare the two and show how, okay, when you look at the Bible and we read about place names, you know, Jerusalem, Beth Shan, all that stuff, you can go over to the Holy Land, you can dig these things up. You see them there. The Book of Mormon talks about places. They can't find them anywhere on the planet. All right? And the reason is because they're not on the planet. Um, it's made up. But it's a fascinating, it's, it's fascinating. It'll bring together a lot of things we've talked about here in the Course. But anyways, today what we're going to be talking about and finishing up is English translations. Um, we talked a little bit about the ancient translations last week. And, um, you know, again, one of the major benefits of translations is it gives you an idea, as you work back, it gives you an idea of what the text was that they were using. You know, so for example, if I have a translation from the 2nd century A.D., a Coptic translation, then that will give me an idea of what the Greek, the Greek text was that they were using, because I know how it translates, how the words translate. So they're very valuable, and also it shows how very early on the Word of God was being dispersed throughout the Roman Empire. You know, you've got all these different people groups now with their own version of the Bible, and it also tells you what books they considered canonical, right? Because which books are you going to translate? The ones that you consider canonical. So when you look at these ancient translations, not only do you understand what the text was that they were using, but you also understand what they considered at that time to be authoritative scripture. And when you do that, when you put all that together, what bubbles up is our 27 books. We're not missing a book of the Bible. We're not missing some text. So when you watch the History Channel and Discovery Channel, they talk about some gospel we're missing, or we forgot to bring this one into the canon, you can dismiss that out of hand. Because we have the 27 books that God wants us to have. All right, so you don't need to worry about that. So these, uh, these translations also, uh, I mean, people read those to actually write their own literature through the years. Yeah. And uh, so the literature, 
literature that we read, like handling whatever, uh, can it actually be a derivation from what they mm-hmm. knew from reading the word, right? Yeah. Yeah, well, German translations. The Italian was a big one, you know, the Latin Vulgate was used throughout the Roman Empire and any, any place that you know, spoke Latin. Because people didn't read Greek. I mean, the average person didn't read at all, but if you did read, you weren't going to read Greek, you were probably going to read Latin. And so the Latin was a very important translation. And by the way, it's a fairly good one too. I mean, it's not off base. You know, it's a good translation. But what it does, it really gives us insight into what they consider to be canonical, how they understood the text and how they translated the words that haven't been used for hundreds of years. You know, it tells us how they translated that Greek word and we can understand from the Latin what they thought the Greek was or what the meaning of the Greek was. So let's look at the English translations. And really when you start with English translations, you're going to start with a guy named John Wycliffe. Wycliffe Bible Translators, anybody hear that? Yeah, well, it's named after John Wycliffe. And uh, he was born 1320 to 1384, and he's known as the Morning Star of the Reformation. Now, when did the Reformation really kick in? When was that? 1500s. 1500s. Yeah. Reformations kicked in around the 1500s. But he laid the groundwork for the, for the um, Reformation because he was the first one that translated the Bible into English. All right? And English was a part of the you know, the known world at that time. And he translated the Greek text that he had into English. And he directed a group here called the Lollards. Um, the Lollards were an itinerant um, preaching group in England. And uh, what they would do is he would train these guys sort of as, uh, as preachers. And then as he would send them out, he would give them a copy of the translated English Bible. Now, what was this before? What was invented after this time? Printing press. So how did they get these? Copied them by hand. Think about that. How'd you like to copy the Bible by hand? No, it's not. He's called the Morning Star. What is the Morning Star? Yeah, the first thing you see rising on the horizon. I mean, he's called the Morning Star because really. He was, the, he was the first what you would call evangelical preacher, all right? Um, the first one that really preached from the scripture. Now, before this, how did they preach? No. They preached their stories. They preached their... You know, you, you would go as a, as a person in those days, you would go to the um, university and you would get your degree in theology having never read a Bible, all right? It was irrelevant whether you read the Bible or not. All it was relevant is, did you pass your classes? And they told you what the Bible said. But it's, it was not uncommon for people to be preachers and pastors in you know, the, the established churches having never touched, read, or seen a Bible. Because all they did was parrot what somebody else taught them. He, he broke that mold because what he did is when he translated the Bible into English, all of a sudden now people had their own copy of this. And they could see, wait a minute, the Bible says this, and the guy down at the church, parish church, says that. There's something different here. And that was dangerous to the establishment. All right? And uh, the thing about the Lollards, they were, uh, they were quite persecuted. Now, it's interesting. John Wycliffe died a natural death, believe it or not. 
Even though he was the instigator of all of this supposed trouble, he died a natural death. He did not um, die at the stake. But many of the Lollards, many of these preachers were actually persecuted. Many of them burned at the stake. Um, if you go to London today, you can go down to an area called the Smithfields. And down at the Smithfields, back many years ago, that's where they would burn these heretics at the stake. And when they burned the Lollard, they would take the Bible that he had and wrap it around his neck and burn it with him. And believe it or not, we still have some of these Bibles floating around today from the 1300s. Where did the name come Beats me. I don't know. It might have been the area. I don't know. I really don't know the answer to that one. That's a good question, though. I don't know the answer to that. Um, he translated the New Testament into English in 1380, and then the Old Testament was completed. He did a large part of it, but it was really completed after his death by you know, a person that came along. The whole point here is that prior to this point, the only Bible you had was the Latin Bible for the most part. That was chained down at the parish church. You didn't have access to this. The point, the point that, that John Wycliffe would really, his really claim to fame was he made the Bible available to the commoner. Alright? You know, we go down to the Zondervan bookstore, you can pick out any one of 25, 30 different translations on the shelf there. Imagine not having a Bible. The only Bible you had was written in Latin and you didn't read Latin. That's, that's what it was like. So when he translated this into English, he really started the ball rolling. And this, this movement here really was the little, like, maybe pea on top of the mountain as it started going down the mountain. It turned into the Reformation. He's the one that really started this whole thing. And uh, when he translated this, he didn't have the Greek text in front of him, so he translated it from the Latin Vulgate. All right. Now, most of these guys were real scholars. They could read three, four, five different languages. They were pretty smart back then. A lot smarter than most people today. But uh, he didn't have access to the Greek manuscripts. Why is that? Why do you think that was? Yeah, and he was in England, right? And all the Greek manuscripts are down in Constantinople. And he didn't have access to them. And it wasn't like he was going to ask the church if he could go down and read the manuscripts to produce an English translation. That wasn't going to work. All right. So what did he have? He had the Latin Vulgate. And again, the Latin is a good translation. It's not bad. It's not a bad one. It's a good one. You can read the Latin Vulgate and get saved. All right. So it's not a bad translation, but he just used what he had. So really, his, the Wycliffe Bible was really a second generation translation. Greek to Latin, Latin to English. It's still a good translation. Um, in 1384, he died in peace, as it said here. Um, but just to show how the Catholics hated this guy, <laughs> they uh, dug him up. He, he was actually tried in absentia. They had a little, like, effigy of him in the courtroom. And they tried him, condemned him as a heretic. And uh, you got to understand the Catholic mentality. When they condemned you as a heretic, what did that mean to them? You're against the Pope, so what would be your punishment? Well, temporal death, but what else? Eternal. Eternal death. So by trying him, they thought, well, we're going to try him and condemn him to hell. And uh, so what they did is they did that, and then they went out and they dug up his bones, burned them in the ash, and uh, thrown them into the river Swift. 
This was, I, I can't remember how many years it was. It was quite a few years after his death. Pardon? I'm, I'm, I don't know the answer to this. You can look it up on Google, but it's probably like 60 or 80 years after his death. It was, it was quite a ways. It wasn't, you know, just after his death. They, it was a few years. And uh, burned him, thrown him in the River Swift, and from there they went in all the oceans of the world. And sort of symbolically, it's like what he started in England dispersed throughout the world. It's interesting. And the Catholic Church thought, you know, they were condemning him to hell um, when, in fact, their trials were meaningless. Um, John Purvey, um, who lived from 1354 to 1428, um, produced a revision of this Bible, the Wycliffe Bible. And what he did is he, he replaced some of the what we call the Latinate constructions. What is that? Well, that's the figures of speech. All right. And he made them, he replaced them, put them in English. Now, again, when you do a translation from one language to another, what are some of the things you have to do? Yeah, you have to, word order changes. You know, the Greek word order is different than the English word order. And the Latin, if you all take Latin, if you remember back that far. Anybody here know Latin? Remember you have taken Latin in school? Two years? You've forgotten it, right? It's gone. It's leaked. It's leaked out. It leaked out. But, you know, Latin, the word order is different, and even in other languages. So one of the things you have to do is modify the word order to make it flow in whatever language you're going into. And that's what John Purvey did. He did a little bit of, of um, doctoring up of the word order in order to make it flow a little bit more easily in the English. But this is really the first English translation that we had. And it was from the Latin Vulgate back in the 1300s. And again, um, since... Since really this whole concept of having a Bible was illegal in the Catholic faith, anybody caught with one of these was subject to the death penalty. Now, why, why do you think that was? Why was the Catholic so, so much against people having a Bible? Well, they didn't maintain control and they could have their little, uh, they can make any rules they want. You wouldn't know the difference because you, you wouldn't be. Mm-hmm. That's the devious yeah. meaning. Wasn't the philosophy that they were the only ones that were educated, intelligent enough? That's it. It was their worldview. They were the only ones. The Catholic Church. They were not saying, "Hey, we're teaching false doctrine. We won't. We don't want people to find out." That wasn't their mentality. Their mentality was, "We're teaching the truth." And if we allow people to have a Bible, they're going to misinterpret it and come up with all kinds of weird things, and we don't want that because we are the keepers of divine truth. You understand? No, they were afraid. They were afraid that if the Bible got into the common people's hands, that the common people would misunderstand it, and therefore be in danger of hell because they would not understand the Bible because after all the Catholic Church felt that they were the only ones who could accurately translate or not accurately translate but accurately understand the Bible that was the mentality now the problem with that mentality was they had misunderstood it <laughs> that's the problem but the problem th- their motives were if we allow this Bible to get out to everybody we're going to have all kinds of beliefs and all kinds of different things out there and we don't want that to happen because we don't want people to go to hell because we've got the right way to heaven and we don't want them to get all confused by reading the Bible in their own language. Well, they've already messed it up majorly because they got into Oriental 
Mm-hmm. But they didn't know that. They didn't know that. They did not. You got to understand. They didn't know. They are no different than the Pharisees. When Christ showed up, what was the problem with the Pharisees, by and large? They knew everything. They had all the answers. So this guy, if he doesn't teach what we're teaching, obviously he's wrong. It never occurred to them that they're wrong, and they, it never crossed their mind that they could be wrong. It never crossed their mind that they were in error. And that's the same problem you had with Catholicism back then. It never crossed their mind that they could be wrong about anything. It, it, they were right. They were the recipients of God's truth. They, they could fictitiously, but nevertheless in their mind accurately, go back to Peter. They thought that they were the only true church. And by the way, that's, that's, that theology has not changed. You've got to understand that. The theology of the Catholic Church today is anyone who is outside the Catholic Church cannot get to heaven. You've got to be in the Catholic Church to get to heaven. Well, both, probably both factors came into there. I mean, both factors fit in there. But, but when you look back at the church itself and their writings, they, they wanted to protect, in their minds, they wanted to protect the truth. And by allowing everybody to have a Bible, that was dangerous because these people who were uneducated would come up with the wrong answers. To understand what's going on here, they felt that they were the only group that could accurately translate or understand it. Now, very much like clubs. Yeah. Now, the same thing happens today. We got the same thing today. For example, if you look at the Mormon Church, they believe that they are the only ones, the church, is the only ones that can accurately understand and interpret Scripture. So, so they tell you what to believe. All right. And, and I'll tell you what, if you, if you understand anything, and you know, I've done, I pick on Mormonism just because I've, I've been familiar with it. It's insidious the way they do that. You know, when you're when you're 12 years old as a boy in the in the Mormon Church, you are inducted into the Aaronic priesthood, so to speak. You serve communion. You're in service in the church, and it goes on from there. Aaronic priesthood, and then at 18, you become part of the Melchizedekian priesthood. In which case you're an elder in the church and then you do your mission and all of that. And they have all these different studies and they tell you what to study and what to believe and how to teach it. And I mean, it is on from, it goes on from there. You're told what to believe. Alright? You're not told to go and search the scriptures yourself and think on your own. You're told what to believe. The same thing holds true in Catholicism today. You're told what to believe. You're not told, go, you know, go check it out with the scripture. You're told what the scripture means. And I can read that and I say, well, I read that and that's not what I get out of that. And the church says it's irrelevant. That's what it means. Believe it. And it's the same thing. And that was, that was what was behind a lot of this phobia about having people having their own translation. Because now all of a sudden the common person can read the Bible and come up with their own conclusions. And when they clash with the official stance of the established church... The established church said they're in danger of hell because we have the truth. We are the ones that know the truth. And therefore, anything that's not that, anybody that believes something other than what we believe is a heretic. And they would burn them at the stake. Or kill them or something else. So that's, the, that's what's going on here. Alright? Yeah? Yeah. Yeah. 
Catholicism is seen as Christianity in, in most places. And Catholicism is a cult. You know, you understand, you understand that good Catholics go to hell. If you're a good Catholic, in other words, if you're a good Catholic and you believe what the church tells you, you go to hell. Bad Catholics go to heaven. Understand what, understand what I'm saying here. The church's definition. The church's definition of a good Catholic is what? You go to Mass, you do this, you do that, you do your Hail Marys, you do your whatevers, you do all. That's a good Catholic to the Catholic Church. Those people go to hell. Bad Catholics who don't believe that and actually believe the Gospel and believe in salvation by faith alone and Christ alone, the bad Catholics, they're the ones that go to heaven. You understand what I'm getting at there? All right. So, so understand Catholicism is a cult. We can get into that much deeper, but Catholicism is a cult. They are not Christian. They're not. The theology is not Christian. There needs to be some people in the Catholic Church that accidentally have found the truth. But the Catholic Church as a whole, the Pope right now as a whole, he's, he's not going to heaven. And by the way, John Paul's not in heaven either. The one that just died. He's not in heaven. And by the way, I know it's going to shock you, Mother Teresa's not there either. All right? Because she did not believe the gospel. She did not believe the gospel. She was asked what she believed. And she said, I don't think you need to believe the gospel. If you're just sincere, God will let you into heaven. Absolutely. That's exactly what she said. All right? Now, I'm, I'm sorry. You know, I'm sorry if I popped a couple of balloons here. But you got to understand... That in the Catholic Church, if you don't believe what they tell you to believe, you're not going to heaven. And what they tell you to believe is not what's in the Bible. But it doesn't matter because that's what the church says. Oh yeah, they do. It's it's an evolving kind of thing. Sorry. It's okay. But the funny thing is, then you want to go back and read church history. It's all around the Catholic Church. Yeah. No, not the true church history. Yeah, not true church history. Anyways, we're off on that. Get on a rabbit trail. Never get back to the to the lesson here. Um, yeah, once in a while. Um, another the, now the second great personage that came on the scene is William Tyndale. All right, and uh, he lived from 1492 to 1536, and he produced the second uh, major English translation. And he couldn't produce this in England, so he actually produced it on the continent and shipped it back into England. All right. Um, he lived his entire life on the run just about. Um, in fact, one time he was going out the back door while the soldiers were coming in the front door and he just escaped. Um, in 1536, he was finally captured. And on October 6, 1536, while being burned at the stake, he said, Lord, open the king of England's eyes. He was burned at the stake for doing what? Translating the Bible into English for people. Um, I have an interesting video on the history of the English Bible that I haven't shown here, but I've shown elsewhere. And I'm thinking that, uh, I'm forgetting who the bishop was of Can the Can bishop of Canterbury was at this time. He was a pretty bad guy. And he would pay to, for, he would pay money if you could come up with a Tyndale Bible, and he would burn it. So he would pay like, I'm just going to pull a number out of the air, $10. Just 
just for, for us to understand. He would pay $10 for every Tyndale Bible that showed up. Well, it cost Tyndale $2.50 to produce one. So they would ship one to him. He would burn it, give them 10 bucks. They'd take 10 bucks, go back, produce four more, and ship them in. So the poor guy who's thinking he was trying to destroy the Bible is actually funding, is actually funding the production of them. So... <laughs> I forget who the bishops. I forget the bishops. Name. Go out and look at it on history, and they would they would actually ship them in in sacks of flowers. They would smuggle them in to England in flower sacks. But yeah, I mean he, <laughs> poor old guy. Can you imagine him finding that out? You know. Yeah, but the point is, you know, you try to stamp out the word of God, and what happens? You can't because it's the word of God. All right, God is behind this thing. All right. So in 1536, he was burned at the stake for this. And then we have somebody else come along called Miles Coverdale. I don't know if you ever heard of the Coverdale Bible. Uh, Miles Coverdale lived from 1488 to 1569. And really he was uh, William Tyndale's assistant. And he produced the first complete English Bible, start to finish, one guy doing it, 1535. One of the things he did, a couple of notable things... He introduced chapter summaries and he separated the Apocrypha from the Old Testament. Now, again, up to this point, the Apocrypha was considered part of the Bible. I mean, they just, it was blended right in. He separated it out. He was the first one to actually put it in a separate section. So you had the Old Testament, the Apocrypha, and then the New Testament. Was that canonical? No. It was never canonical. But the thing is, they, it was questioned. They weren't sure. So if you're not sure, what do you do? You include it. All right. And it was included as part of some old, remember, old Sinaiticus and Vaticanus had it in there. So it was included there. So what they did here is they just brought it along with the, with the ride, so to speak. Um, I'm sorry? I don't know the answer to that. I think it was, a lot of these, a lot of times what they did with a lot of these is he took Tyndale's Bible and he used that as the basic starting point and then he would go back and look at some original works and maybe change the wording. That's what they did with a lot of these. A lot of these guys didn't just start over with ground zero. They didn't just say start with a blank sheet of paper and go from there. They used something prior and went on. I don't know the answer. I think he did, but I don't know the answer to that one. I don't know the exact answer to that. The Greek manuscripts are definitely used in the King James, King James. But again, interestingly, the King James was actually a revision. They started with an English translation all right, as the basic starting point, And then they used the Greek manuscripts to work through that. All right? So they didn't start out with a blank sheet of paper. You didn't want, when you started the King James, you didn't walk in a room with the Greek manuscripts on the table and some blank parchment and start from there. You started with a copy of the Bible that they had that sort of makes its way back all the way to Wycliffe, who was really the starting point. A lot of these, again, are revisions. They're not brand new translations starting out from scratch. They are revisions of an existing translation. Um, And it was reprinted twice in 1537, 1550, and 1553. What do you have now? Printing press. So you can pump these out a little bit faster, all right, because Gutenberg invented the printing press, what was it, 1490, something like that, I think somewhere around in there, 
um, is when he produced that. Uh, Matthew's Bible is the next one. It came along Thomas Matthew. Um, it's the pen name of John Rogers. John Rogers was a martyr under the reign of Bloody Mary of England. Um, but he went by the pen name of Thomas Matthews. Um, and he published the Bible in 1537. It was a combination of the Old Testament text of Tyndale and Coverdale with the New Testament text of Tyndale. So what he did is he basically, again, revised. And again, what are you doing? Well, you're setting type. You know, when you're producing these on, a, on an ancient printing press or on a printing press, you're setting type. So as he's setting the type, he's taking the, the um, uh, Old Testament text of Tyndale and Coverdale. Again, Coverdale was Tyndale's assistant. Took those two, and then he added the New Testament text of Tyndale. Um, one of the things it contained were um, copious notes and references. That's one of the. This is the first study Bible, if you want to think about it. So there was some notes in there, some references, some cross references in this one that you didn't have in the other ones. And interestingly, the 1537 edition was approved by Henry VIII. Now, what do you know about Henry VIII? Other than he had what six wives? My brother could name them all, actually. He's weird. No. What did he do? I forget which one it was. Was it Catholic Church? And he wanted to be divorced from, and I forget which one of his wives it was, Catherine. He wanted to be divorced from Catherine. And the Pope said no. And uh, Henry said, well, up yours then. And he went out and he separated from the Catholic Church and created the Church of England. And made himself the head of the Church of England. <laughs> and then he could have his divorce that he wanted. Um, and so part of this was a reaction against Catholicism. Well, Catholicism says you can't have a Bible. We're going to have our own Bible. So you see how the, all the history works in there. You know, now it certainly doesn't let him off the hook for what he did. But you know, God ordains the events of history to bring about His own eternal plans and purposes, doesn't He? So what you have is uh, 1537. We have, by the way, we have copies of some of these old Bibles still around today. They're very, very rare. Um, Richard Tavener um, was another guy that came along. He was a layman. He knew Greek, so what he did in 1539, he took Matthew's Bible and actually did some Greek, went back to the original languages and did some emendations to it. All right. What are you seeing going along? What are you seeing happening here as you go along? It's pre preserving the text, and they're improving. They're refining it a little bit. You know, they're bringing in more textual analysis, more, more of that. And, and the question is, well, why did they change it? And the answer to that is, well, when it comes down to a printing in those days, when it comes down to a printing, you had to set the type, right? So when they set the type, what did they usually do? They would go back, they would edit it, they would make it read a little better. So that's why you have some of these iterations of this. You know, they didn't have a set of plates laying around in a back room. You know, and every few years they go back and just grab them and produce a new, um, you know, a new edition of the Bible. They would actually reset the type. All right. And that's why you see some of these things going along. Now, today we don't have that, right? I mean, we stick it on a computer disk and bang, it's there. And we can reproduce it as many times as we want. But back then you had to redo that by hand every time. And when you did that, they would make changes. And that's why you have these these refined versions as you go along, all right? And um, 
Then we have what we call the Great Bible. Why was it called the Great? Because it was big. It was a huge Bible. And uh, it was uh, instigated by those who wanted a translation without any notes or references. And Miles Coverdale produced that in 1538. It was a pretty big one. And um, I'm thinking this, this is the one that uh, was put in the churches in England. One of the things they wanted is they wanted the ability for anybody, this, by the way, was passed, I think, under Henry VIII, where if you were a person in a parish, you could go down to the church and you could have the Bible read to you. They would have somebody there to read the Bible to you if you wanted it read to you. And they would use the great Bible, but it was so big and so costly that they would actually chain it to the, to the pulpit where it was so nobody would walk off with this thing. But it was a, it was a big, it was a really big Bible. And that's why it's called the great Bible. Um, but again, what you have here is you have a revision of a revision. You're not, at this point, you're not having, again, you're not going back and saying, here's the Greek manuscripts, here's a blank sheet of apartments, let's start over again. You're starting with an English translation. You're starting with something that somebody already did. And then you're massaging it, you're editing it, you're bringing in the Greek works, you're bringing in some other stuff, but mainly you're revising what's already there. It's not a brand new, from the scratch translation. Was it even bigger than the one used for uh, Joe Biden's inauguration? Did you see how big that was? No, I didn't. You know what? I, I, I did not watch the inauguration. I went up and ate lunch. <laughs> actually, actually, we had Bible study that day, so I went up and I was reading my Bible and not watching that. So I wasn't much on the inauguration. He's not the Messiah, you know that. Even though, even though he's treated like the Messiah. Um, then you have the Geneva Bible that comes along. This, this, by the way, was the this here is the Bible of the Reformation. This was John Calvin's Bible, and this was the Bible that came along on Mayflower when it came across the ocean. Um, it was produced by in Geneva, Switzerland, by Miles Coverdale, John Knox, who had fled to the continent to escape the persecutions of Mary Tudor, who was martyring Christians up in England. Um, the New Testament was first printed in Geneva in 1557. And this, what's notable about this, this is the first English Bible to have chapter divisions and verses. Before that, you just had chapters, but you had to scan down to find out, okay, where do I start? Now you have chapter divisions and verses, and that's where we get our chapter divisions and verses. But the Geneva Bible, actually, you can pick these up today. They have them now. Um, it's R.C. Sproul's Ligonier Ministries. You can pick up a Geneva Study Bible. And this is the translation that was um, used by the Reformers. No. The first one that came, the first Greek translation that had it, or Greek text that had it, was Stephanus's text. And I forget when that was. That was like early 1500s. He created verse divisions, chapter and divi verse divisions. Yeah. It was not long before this that the Stephanus text came out. The, and we didn't, I didn't even go over all the different Greek texts. I didn't want to go down that path and have your eyes glaze over. But you had these Greek compilations of texts that came along. And one of them was called Stephanus's text. And he's the one that actually created chapter divisions and verses to find things easily. Now, the Geneva Bible, it didn't, it didn't copy Stephanus. It didn't follow Stephanus' text. 
but it was produced by Miles Coverdale. Now again, Miles Coverdale got his text from Tyndale, who got his text from Wycliffe. I mean, you can see these revisions going along here. Now they're getting a little different each time. They're getting a little better because now all of a sudden now they're having access to some of the Greek manuscripts, so they're able to do a little bit more. But it's still a revision. No, no, not necessarily. And sometimes you wonder why they came up with a chapter division there, and you know they just picked a place and split it right there. But it's nice to have chapter divisions and verse divisions, right? Can you imagine pastor saying, like, turn somewhere and mark here and we'll pick up where we left off and you got a whole continuous text and trying to find where it is in there. Um, in 1560, the complete Bible was produced. By 1644, it had gone through 140 editions and served as the basis for the KJV Bible. This, this was really the, the first widely used English version. 140 different editions. What does that mean? 140 printings of this thing. All right, from uh, 1560 to 1644, that's 84 years, if I do my math right. Um, it was the Bible of the Puritans and Shakespeare. The Puritans used the Geneva Bible. And it was the one that came across on the Mayflower when the pilgrims came to America. They used the Geneva Bible. This was really the, 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 the Bible of the English Reformation right here. The Bible. And it was the basis for the King James. Now, in there you have another Bible called the Bishop's Bible. Um, I'm sorry, this is the one that they had in every church. I was wrong. It was not the Great Bible, it was this one. Um, it was produced by a group of eight scholars. And um, even though they wanted to just revise the Great Bible, they actually went beyond that and actually did some major revisions to the New Testament. And uh, the... Convocation of 1521 by the Church of England instructed that every parish church had to buy a copy of this Bible and have it available to be read to the public whenever they wanted it read to them. So if you were a farmer, you could go in there at the end of the day and you could have somebody read to you the Bible. Even though you couldn't read, they would have somebody there that could read the Bible to you. Um, be in every church for public access and reading. So all the parish churches in England had one of these Bibles in it. Regardless of uh, religion? Yeah. Well, you, Church of England. I mean, it's Church of England. The parish churches in England were Church of England. Now, they used to be Catholic, but then they became Church of England Anglican churches. All right? Um, the Reims-Douay Bible um, was instigated by the Roman Catholic Church to be a translation of the Latin Vulgate. Um, the New Testament was completed in 1582 with many notations. And why did they do this? Well, the cat's out of the bag. All right. We've got all these English versions floating around. So they wanted to come up with their own English version that would try to supplant the demonic versions of Tyndale and Coverdale and all the rest of them. So that's why they did their own translation. Um, but what it was, it was an English translation of the Latin Vulgate. So it's a second generation Translation. All right. Now, where did, where did Tyndale start with? The Latin Vulgate, right? So he started with it too. But the difference is, is as the English versions from Tyndale proceeded onward, they began to bring into them the 
other Greek manuscript evidence. They actually brought in other manuscript evidence. This one didn't. This one just started with the Latin Vulgate and translated into English. And it was uh, originally intended to counteract the Protestant translations. So they produced this with a little bit of a spin to it. And a spin was to, to, um, to counteract some of the theology of the Reformation and try to support the Catholic theology of things like indulgences. That's a biggie. Things of indulgences and prayers for the dead and all that kind of stuff. Polemical means you're arguing against a heresy. Like if I stand up here and I, and I, and I um, give you a description of Mormonism and the evils of Mormonism, I'm being polemical because I am speaking against something. So they wanted to counteract the theology of the Reformation with their own. So they had to have their own Bible to do that and they wanted this to supplant, they wanted this to supplant the English translations that were available at that time. And by the way, just so you understand, it's not a bad translation. I have one of these. And when you read it, the gospel is there clear. I mean, it includes the Apocrypha, but, you know, get rid of that. It's not a bad, bad translation. All right? Um, the gospel is still there. You can still become a Christian reading this. Did the Reeves do a put the Apocrypha back in... It didn't have separate, right? Or, or no? I'm, the one I have has a separate. Oh, okay. Um, I don't know the exact answer to that, but the one I have has it in the middle. Oh. Yeah, you're? Yeah. Okay. And then the other thing I was going to say about that version is that the Psalms are one verse different from okay. the James Bible. All right. If you want to look up Psalms 119.18, it's going to be 119.18. Okay. So they just... All right, that's interesting. Didn't know that one. That's a new one. But um, it never really became a serious contender. I mean, it was used in the Catholic churches. But where were most of the Catholic churches at? They spoke, they didn't speak English, right? So this never got a foothold in the English-speaking world. I mean, the English-speaking world had really started going towards the Reformation viewpoint, the Protestant viewpoint. It never really got a foothold. And where it would have been used in the English world, they had these other translations, so it never really took off. All right. Weren't there people in England that still believed in the Catholic Church? Oh, yeah, there were. And that would be where it would be valuable to the Catholic that, That's where it would be valuable, but, but as, in, as it went on, English really went... I mean, at first it wavered back and forth between Catholicism and Anglicanism, but then it went totally the Protestant route. The Anglican root. Yeah, but but in, you know, like Henry VIII was Anglican, Elizabeth was Anglican, or Church of England. They wanted her to be Catholic, um, but in between Elizabeth and Henry VIII, that was Mary, Bloody Mary, and Mary Tudor were in there. I, I used to know all that history there. You can go out and read it online. It's pretty interesting. Um, how, how did they try to? They included the Apocrypha, all right, one thing. And then they, 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 there are certain passages that they, they spun to support their Catholic theology, like the primacy of Peter, um, 
indulgences was a big... Indulgences were the engine that drove Catholicism. You understand that? Without indulgences, Catholicism dies. All right, because the whole basis of Catholicism is you're not sure you're going to heaven, so you better be in Mass on Sunday. You know, that kind of thing. Um, and you better do what the Pope says because you don't know if you're going to go to heaven or not. I mean, that's the engine that drives that whole system. All right? Yes and no. Indulgences were, if you do this, you're going to get so many years off purgatory. You know, so, and in fact, in the Douay Reims version I have, there's a little encyclical, encyclical letter that the Pope wrote granting a hundred days indulgence for anybody who reads the Bible. You know, see, I get a hundred days off purgatory if I read my Bible every day, so to speak. You know, it is, it is, but it's the engine that drove it. Yeah, there were some other differences that came along with that. For example, the whole indulgence um, system didn't come along into the Church of England. Um, I don't, I'm not an expert on the changes, but, but the Church of England um, came a long way from Catholicism towards Protestantism. All right, came a long ways. It didn't make it all the way there, but it was a, it was a long ways towards that. All right. Um, so that's a Reims Douay version. I gotta get a little clicker for this thing. Um, King James Version is the next major translation, all right, that came along. Um, it was first produced in 1611 under the sponsorship of James I of England, hence King James Version. Um, he authorized this translation as a way to end strife between the Puritans and the Church of England. Again, the Puritans were the, they went all of the way, if you want to think about it. They made it all the way to the Reformation. The Church of England is halfway between Catholicism and Reformation. Puritans went the whole way. And uh, what he wanted to do is the Puritans were a, a, a rising, growing group. And so he wanted a way to somehow end the friction between the Church of England and the Puritans who went all the way towards the Reformation. So that's why he authorized his translation. And uh, the difference between this one here is that most of the other versions had one or two guys working on them. This one had a whole group of scholars working on it. So it wasn't just one or two guys in a back room. Rather, they had, you know, I think about 70 or 80 people working on this thing at this, at the, um, in this translation. And um, they also brought in manuscripts that are actually original manuscripts they didn't have. Right. Yeah, the, the, yeah, what you see, you know, I'm not an expert on the history of all of that. But basically what the Puritans, the Puritans traced their roots from the Church of England, but they separated all the way. They went all the way from, if you want to think it, to the Reformation. The, the Reformation was happening in Geneva. They went all of the way. The Church of England got one foot out of Catholicism. They still had one foot in it. The Puritans went the entire way. They were radical. All, and they went all the way um, into the Reformation. All right. Now, they still had some beliefs that maybe we wouldn't exactly adhere to. They certainly had the doctrine of salvation down and things like that. You read their old writings. And also, when they came to the King James and they had these 80 men, one of their primary functions was to go back to the original Greek. Yeah. Now, yeah, but that was 
one of the main philosophers, so mm-hmm. they weren't taking a second-hand right. translation from the Catholic Church. Right. Now, they did use the English text of the Geneva Bible as a starting point. And a, they didn't need to with the quality of the Right. They didn't need to, but they did. Right. So they didn't reinvent the wheel. So if you look at the King James Bible and the Geneva Bible, you'll see there's a lot of commonality. But understand, what they, it, it, even though there's a lot of commonality, even though they started with the English text of the Geneva, they didn't just take the English text of the Geneva. Rather, they would take the English text and then they would go back to Erasmus Greek text that he put together, all right, and they would actually look and see how well that translation was from the original Greek. This is the first translation where they really went back to the original Greek and the original Hebrew in order to do some of the translation work. Most of the other ones started with an English translation that was a result of an English translation that was a result from a Catholic, or Latin translation. And there right. were never so many people working together from so many different backgrounds right. to create one Right. And, and, the, and the King James Bible is, a, is an excellent, excellent translation. It was really the first translation that, that really took into consideration multiple manuscript evidence, all the manuscript evidence. All right. Um, now, the original, by the way, did contain the Apocrypha. The original 1611 did, but later editions took it out. All right. Now, understand that nobody in here has a 1611 edition. If you did, you couldn't read it because it's Old English, all right, with the Old English spellings and the Old English things. So you couldn't read it. Um, you can buy these online. You can get an original 1611 copy of this if you want. Um, but it's gone through many different publications and, should I say, many different revisions. The King James Bible that you pick up today is not exactly the same as the 1611 because there has been a few changes to it over the years. But it has really been, if you want to think about it, it's been the workhorse of the English world. I mean, when it comes to a translation, it's been the workhorse of it. Um, it's the version that I memorized all my verses out of. So now, I'm not a KJV only person, all right, but it is, it is a good translation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And and I didn't talk, you know, I didn't do the class that talked about all the different Greek, all right, um, versions they had. But understand what they had to do with the Greek. Did they have a single Greek manuscript? Remember, there was a single. No, they didn't. What they do? Well, they had Luke. They had five or six, you know copies of Luke, they had three or four of Mark, they had two of John, they had... So somebody had to come through and had to put these together, these manuscripts together, and produce a complete text. And that's what Erasmus did. Erasmus, Stephanus, and others, they put together these complete Greek texts, and then these became the basis for the King James Bible. All right? And that's called, we call that the TR, the Textus Receptus. It came from the words in the First, uh, the, like the cover page, it said this is the text commonly received, textum, receptum, and that's where we get the TR. All right, that's where that comes from. Okay? Um, but this is the first translation that really went back and did this. Now, you have other translations that have come along in the, the, um, in the years after the King James. By the way, King James dominated the translations all the way up to the late 1800s. 
I mean, really, it was the dominant, it was the English translation that was used, other than the Geneva Bible here and there. Basically, it was the King James that was used. Um, but in the 1880s, um, there's another version that came along called the English Revised Version. Um, and this was the first English version that was based on a Greek manuscript line that was not the same as the King James line. Remember when we talked about Greek manuscripts, we have families. Remember we talked about that? We have the Byzantine group, and that is from the area of Asia Minor. And then there's the Alexandrian group, which is down from Egypt. Well, the ERV was based on the Alexandrian manuscript tradition, not the Byzantine. So there are a few differences. All right, there are a few differences. And uh, those who are KJV-only people, this is where they just really go haywire on this thing and talk about the demonic um, Alexandrian text and things like that. Um, you're KJ, are you KJV only? No, but I like the KJV. I love the KJV, by the way. I love the KJV. Um, the, difference, the difference, again, when you have two, manu- two manuscript traditions separated by geography and by language and everything else, you would expect there to be certain changes that happen over time, right? Okay. When you compare the Byzantine and the Alexandrian manuscripts, by the way, they're... they're very much alike. I mean, they're, they're significant, significantly identical. They're not like two completely different texts. Again, we're talking about handfuls of places where there are differences. Um, the reason that I personally think that the Alexandrian is a little better text is because all the ancient translations we have have that as their textual basis. In other words, when you look at the Syriac translation, you look at the old Italian translation, they seem to come from the Byzantine or the Alexandrian tradition rather than the Byzantine. Again, we're not talking about major differences. We already talked about that, right? We already put that to bed that we're not talking about major theological shifts here. And there's no evidence that there was any intentional theological changing of the text. All right? We're talking about a few words here and there that are different. But you also talk about the gentleman like Westcott. Who didn't even believe. Yeah, now that's, that's, the, that's the second part of that. The, the, the Bible yeah. was in error. That's the second part of that. Although I think B.F. Westcott and F.J. Hort here, Westcott and Hort, um, used, the, used a, I would say, a, a, a somewhat better, slightly better um, Greek manuscript evidence or manuscript tradition to do that. They were not evangelical scholars. Um, they were not really, they, they were more, they were in the, uh, we're going to call it the higher intellectual, higher criticism, that whole nine, the whole nine yards, we're talking about higher criticism and all that. They denied the inerrancy of scripture, for the most part, they denied that. So that, that's where a danger comes in when you have, not only when you pick a translation, do you want a good, good English, or a good textual basis, you want to know that the translators have a high view of scripture. Or else you can get into trouble. They didn't have that. And they, they made some, I think, some blunders in the way they thought about doing their translation. But they were the first ones that did something other than the Byzantine. That's the big thing. And, and what you say, and a lot of people say that believe the newer translations, they say they use the latest, the oldest manuscripts. But they may have used the oldest manuscripts, but there were more errors in those oldest manuscripts that they translated from than there were in the original yeah. Greek text that the King James was coming. 
Right. So you have to weigh it all. And and that's one of the things we talked about. If you remember back, we talked about the comparison of, the, of all those. You got to weigh all of the manuscript evidence. You don't want to just say I'm going to go with this te this textual tradition and bag the rest. You don't want to say I'm just going to go with the Alexandrian and I'm going to forget about the Byzantine. You got to take all of it into consideration, all of the text. All right. And you can even go back and study just the yeah. parts where they come across different, so that you can use either translation. Yeah. And, and again, when we talk about the differences here, we're not talking about theological changes. You know, getting rid of the deity Christ, blood atonement, none of that stuff. We're talking about, you know, just word order sometimes, or spellings. You know, and, and again, the biggies are, you know, those two texts that we talked about, the long ending of Mark and the woman taken in adultery. Those are probably the two biggest differences um, in them. Um, but basically what they did is they basically, the, the error that they did is they took just two manuscripts, Vaticanus and Sinaiticus, and just said those are the ones we're going to use, and they really ignored all the rest of the textual tradition. So they didn't, they didn't do what they should have done, which say, okay, let's take all of the manuscripts and look at them. They took two of them and just traced it from, did it, did it on that one. Um, it was intended to be an off uh, revision of the KJV, but it was really a new translation is what they did. That's the English revised version of the 1880s. All right. Um, and by the way, they were I think they were Catholic scholars, weren't they? I think both of those guys were Catholic. Um, they were not, or from the Catholic tradition, they were certainly not evangelical. Um, and uh, I'm not going to go through this here. This, this gives their canons of translation. I'm not going to go do that. Um, the American Standard Version came out in 1901. That was really a revision of the ERV. It was for Americanized. But it was a revision of the English Revised Version, ERV. And then um, you have the Revised Standard Version that came along in the mid in 1950s. It started in 1930s. Old Testament was completed in 52. By the way, the guy who was the general editor of the Old Testament was Herbert G. May, who was a professor at Oberlin College. If you knew that, um, but the Revised Standard Version was one that they tried to. Um, they really took a the ASV of 1901 and came with RSV. So what do you see? Well, you have the ERV of 1880 turned into ASV, which turns into RSV. You see what's going on here? Again, they're not necessarily going back and doing a scholarly work to try and take into all manuscript evidence. They're really starting with a manuscript tradition and going from there. All right. So let's. Um, um, yeah, so a lot writer than it is now. I'll tell you that right now. A lot writer. Um, the the RSV though it did have one. It, it really hit a sort of a, a wall um, because fundamentalists really hated this. Now, by the way, the RSV is not a bad translation, okay? But what happened is, in Isaiah 7.14, they said, Behold, a young woman shall conceive and bear a son. And the fundamentalist people just went nuts because, wait a minute, it said the young virgin shall conceive and bear a son. Well, um, if you understand Hebrew, the word Alma that was translated virgin can also be translated young woman. So it's not a bad translation. How do we know it was virgin, though? How do we know Mary was a virgin and not just a young woman? Well, not because of Isaiah 7.14, but because of what? Matthew. 
Because what Matthew does, Matthew said she was Parthenos, that is virgin. Okay? In Matthew, it's clear that she was virgin. Alright? In Isaiah 7.14, that word can be translated young woman or virgin. It can be translated either way. So, so there's no nefariousness there. They, and I, and I, don't, I think it should be translated virgin because I know it's virgin from Matthew. Alright? So I'm not denying the virgin birth of Mary. Alright? So it was a bad, it was probably a bad move on their part to do that. Even though the text would have let them do that. So follow what's going on there? But Matthew, there's no question that Mary was a virgin. There's no question about it. Because it actually uses, the Greek actually has two words, two different words. And the word it uses is she is a virgin. Yeah. Is Alma a Latin word? No, it's a, it's a Hebrew word. Alma. Alma is the Hebrew, the original Hebrew word. No, it doesn't. It doesn't. Um, the New American Standard Version, which a lot of people use today, um, appeared in 1963. The whole Bible's available in 1971. Again, it's basic revision and modernization of the ASV. Um, but it's a literal translation. And again, you know, that's right. Um, um, it's kind of hard to read a little bit because it's very literal. It follows, uh, it, it's choppy because it doesn't follow. It follows more the, the original language word order than it does the English word order, which makes it a little tough for people to read. It doesn't flow as nicely as the KJV um, does, for example. Um, and the difference is here is that when they did the NASB, all of the translators had to subscribe to a conservative theological statement. They had to really believe in the inerrancy and authority of the Word of God, which, by the way, is an important thing when you're picking a Bible translation. I can have a pagan translate it, or I can have a person who believes in errancy translate it, and I'll take the latter over the former. All right? Even though you might have two good translations, I'll take the latter over the former. I'll take someone who really believes in it. Then we have the New King James Bible that came out just recently. First published in 79, the Old Testament in 82. Um, and it's really, the, King, the New King James is really a modernized revision of the King James for the most part. There are a few places where it takes into consideration some alternate readings. All right, and they're noted in the New King James. Um, but by and large, the New King James is a modernized English version of the KJV. Using the modern, it got rid of the these and thous and put in you and yours and things like that. The New International Version um, came out. To, it was uh, the goal was to replace the NIV or the KJV. Um, the, the reason the NIV gets a lot of little bad press is a lot of the translators were not strictly conservative. Um, you know, I have a lot of mixed feelings about the NIV because of that. I mean, is it a good translation? Can people read it and understand it? Yeah, but I would prefer a different one personally. That's just me. That's Alan Schaefer. That's not. The official position of Church of the Open Door. That's me. All right. And also, isn't it more of a conceptual translation? Yes. That's the other thing. It's yes. The one thing that the NIV does. Remember, when we talked about dynamic equivalence. Anybody remember that? What's dynamic equivalence? Yeah. You take a phrase into a similar phrase. You're not formal equivalence as you're doing word for word. You're very much more literal. Dynamics it means I'm, I'm trying to translate the sense of it. 
And the NIV does more of that than the KJV does. It's, it's getting closer to that. It's not there yet. And, and understand, when it, even the King James, there's a certain level of dynamic equivalence that you have to do because we don't understand the ancient phrases and idioms and things like that. It's just how far do you go? And the NIV goes a little bit further than the KJV does All right, in that regards. Again, it's not an evil, wicked translation. All right, so don't don't think that. But if, if you're doing the word study, you want something else. Now, in our our few minutes remaining, I'm going to fly through this, but I think this will help. And then and then we'll have our video next week. Remember, we talked about the devotionalist, the student, the scholar, and the theologian. Remember, we talked about those three levels. What's the devotionalist? They're the one that reads the scripture, you know, get their our daily bread in the day and they're in the out the door and that's the last they see of it. And then you've got your uh, student that digs a little deeper. You know, they want to find, you know, a little bit more what the text says. They want to. So if you're a student, what do you want? You want a more literal translation. You don't want something that's easy reading. You want to you want something a little deeper. Um, and you might use a couple of different versions because you want to compare one with another. So if you're a student, you know, like in the, in the K. Arthur or something, you want a couple of different versions. Um, a scholar, you're going to get much deeper. Now you're going to start getting into your Greek works, your Greek lexicons. You're going to start wanting to um, go deeper and even use some original language work. All right? And then if you're a theologian, you're actually reading the, the Greek and the Hebrew and things like that. So when you pick a translation, what do you want to pick? All right? Well, let's look at the... Um, the devotionalist. The O there stands for observation, interpretation, application. If you're a devotionalist, what are you into? What do you want to know? Application. You know, I need, I need, I'm having a trouble today, I want something that applies. So you're going to go to application. You're not going to spend a lot of time observing the text. You're not going to spend a lot of time interpreting it. You want the answer. Alright, that's what you want. If you're a student, you're going to go a little bit higher. You're going to do a little bit more observation, a little bit more interpretation. You want to get more into the text. And therefore, the amount of time you spend in your Bible study is going to be weighted more towards reading and interpreting than applying. You see what's going on here? Understand what I'm trying to get at? Now, if you're a scholar, you're getting much deeper, right? Most of your time, if you're in a K. Arthur course, most of your time, if you're doing it right, is spent on observation, then interpretation, and usually the application just follows out of that. But most of the time you're spending in studying the Word of God, you're trying to observe and interpret. All right? And then a theologian is even more so. All right? All I'm trying to say there is that when you choose a translation, where are you on that spectrum? If you're making your way down towards a student-scholar level, you're going to want something that's more literal. You're going to want to bring in some other copies, you know, some other versions. And so when you choose a translation, let's look at it here. This is, this is, this is my understanding of this. You've got your, your, peop, your different groups along the top. So if you're a devotionalist and all you care about is an application for the day, all right, use the NIV, Living Bible, the message, right? That's going to give you the quick fix. Again, it's not something you're going to study from. It's not going to be something you're going to want to do a study from, but there's some value in the reading of that over the newspaper in the morning. Um, as you make your way down towards student, what are you doing? 
you want something that's more, not dynamic equivalent, but more formal equivalent. You want to do the interpretation. Remember we said a dynamic equivalence, somebody's doing the interpretation for you. Peterson did all the interpretation for you in the message. You don't have to interpret, you just need to read it. He's interpreted it for you. Now that could be good or bad. But if you're a student, you don't want somebody else's word on it. What do you want? Your own. So you're going to want to work your way down towards something that is more literal. Alright? You see what's going on here? So as you get down to a theologian, you're reading the Greek and the Hebrew. Alright? The NASB is very close to that because it's very literal. It's very formal equivalent. The KJV and the New King James, they're down there too. They're, they're good study Bibles to work from. Alright? So all I'm trying to do there is show wherever you land that gives you sort of the kind of text that you want. Yes? That's the heretical new... What is it? Um, that's the gender neutral. Yeah. You don't even want that one. That shouldn't even be on there. I should erase that. That's a heretical one. Alright? So that's your interpretation of how it goes in. That, 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 is, that is me trying to help you think about... And, and really, this, this makes sense. The deeper you are into studying the Word of God, what do you want? A more literal translation. Makes sense, right? And you want to compare a couple of them. If you don't read Greek and Hebrew, you want to compare a couple of them. So you want to take like the King James and the NASB and maybe compare it and, and understand a little bit of difference there. Alright? If you're just into it for a devotion... Get the message. That's all you need. Um, quickly now, when you choose a translation, I'm sorry, I have to, we, we talked a lot about this last week, but I'm just going to try to cap it off. When I choose a translation, ask who were the original translators. Did they believe in the verbal plenary inspiration of Scripture or not? All right. So if I pick a version of the Bible, I want translators that really believe that the Bible is the Word of God. They treat it like the Word of God. They're not liberal theologians. So that's why I would shy away from their RSV to, to a large extent, and why I, 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 I'm not a, a rabid New International Version person. All right, that's personal. All right. Then the question is, what text is used? Does it use only one Greek manuscript tradition, Byzantine, Alexandrian, or whatever, or does it take into consideration all of the textual tradition? I want something that takes into consideration all of it. Alright, I don't want to just say I'm going to take that one or that one or that one. I want something that takes into all of it. And that's why some of the newer modern translations, I, I go towards them a little bit, because they use an eclectic text. They take all of it into consideration, not just one or two um, traditions. What method of translation was used? Is it a paraphrase, dynamic equivalent? Is it formal equivalent? Right? If you're more of a devotionalist, just get the dynamic equivalent. You know, let them do the thinking for you. But if you're a student, you want to do the thinking for yourself. So you want something that's much more literal. All right? Um, the theological persuasion of the translators. That, that's something important, too. You know? are, they, are they really um, evangelical in their beliefs? Are they, are they fundamental in their beliefs? Or are they liberals? All right? Now, a liberal can produce a translation of the Bible, but I might not really use it because of their theological persuasion. Not that their theological persuasion colors the translation, but they have, don't have a high view of Scripture. You want some people with a high view of Scripture to be your translators. What style of language is used? 
you know, is it a more modern, under, you know, English flowing translation, or is it something that uses archaic terms and words? Um, what's the general background of the reader? This is important. If you're a brand new Christian, somebody's a brand new Christian, I would probably give them something along the lines of maybe the the, um, the new ESV version, which is a really good version, or I might. I know this sounds weird. I might even give them the New International Version because it's a little bit easier for them to understand than the King James, although I like the King James personally. I would, or I would even give them the New King James because that's a modernized King James because they can read that and understand that. You give, it, you know, you give a new Christian the King James, they're reading these and thou's and thine and all of that. And it's, you know, give them something that they can read. All right? Um, I will go along there. And um, that's the end. Um, I'm two minutes over. Uh, any questions on this? All right. Now, if you want more further study on this, I just got a message called Choosing an English Translation by a guy named Robert Thomas, um, which does a lot of this, um, you know, a lot of the um, stuff at the Master Seminary and College, all right, which is an interesting um, CD I have. So if you're really interested in looking at it more, we can do that. Next week, we're going to have the video comparing the Bible to the Book of Mormon. And it'll give you really a a good understanding of the historicity and the the integrity of the Bible, along with the non-historicity and unintegrity of the Book of Mormon. So that'll be interesting. It'll give you both sides. So, All right, let's close in prayer. Father, thanks for this time, for allowing us to be here to study your word. And I thank you that all of us in here can pick up a copy of the Bible and read it for ourselves. And sometimes we forget, Father, that many people before us have died to give us this privilege. And yet many of us walk into our houses, we have versions all over the place, multiple Bibles. And there was a day, Father, when people would give a year's wage for just one copy of that. Help us to appreciate your word and appreciate what we have and appreciate that we can study it and read it. And I pray that we would do that in Christ's name. Amen.